It's in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful, faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the greeting to the book of Ephesians, and it's where we're going to start. There's much to learn from it. What is the vision for this new series? Why are we going through Ephesians? What are we going to learn? Why call it the Christian household? Because throughout history, men have uh, envisioned and worked towards creating new societies. No matter what period they find themselves in, there are these visionaries and there are uh, these so-called wise men of the time who try to build new societies, and through building new societies, bring about new humanity, new kinds of men and women. And they always try to do so through the power of, um, of just man's wisdom and the power of the state, usually. They believe that with just enough of our own thoughts, you know, our, our own wisdom, apart from any revealed wisdom from God, but just with our own wisdom, and with enough power to enact what we want to get done, we can build new humanities. You see this going, and, and new societies. You see this going all the way back to the ancient societies of, uh, of Greece and Rome. And, you know, the philosophers such as Aristotle and others talked about uh, building new societies and, and so on and what they should be based upon and, 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 and so on. You see it throughout history. Uh, and in our day, the most uh, recent and most famous example would be through the idea of ideas of Karl Marx and his analysis of human society and how through bringing about changes in, uh, in, in economics and bringing about economic liberation could bring about a new society. But not just a new society. You know, it wasn't just about bringing about a new uh, economy. But through this new economy, this belief that they could bring about a new humanity as well whole new, uh, not just new economic policies, but entirely new social structures. And uh, th that society itself would be built upon different social relationships and so on. That's what it's really all about. Beneath it is not just a, it, it is purely a, a purely economic or political agenda, but something that is really a worldview or religious agenda. This is the most recent and, like I said, famous example, and you can see it in Marx's followers. Let me give you a couple of quotes. Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Russian Revolution, said, Socialism is the abolition of all real relations, the abolition of man's slavery to other men and to nature. It is the new society where man will be free and where, as a consequence, the state will have withered away. We can see that his prediction did not come true. It did not wither away. It only grew. Hugo Chavez, the revolutionary leader in Venezuela, said, we cannot predict the new society, once again, the new society that will emerge from these struggles, but I am certain that it will be less cruel, less exploitative, and more just. Now, because we have a privileged view of being, uh, being able to look back in history, we can see how in both cases, their predictions turned out to be completely wrong. Right? The state and the USSR did not vanish away because of a, 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 you know, a, a lack of need for it in this new humanity. If anything, it grew, and it was even more cruel, and it brought about more suffering than existed under the czars. Right? In, in Venezuela, we can see even going on up until today that it did not bring about more uh, just actions, but it brought about more injustice. It brought about more cruelty. Why? 
This new series we're doing isn't political, but what I want us to see is how the ideas that we have and we pursue in society bring about certain consequences. And the ideas for bringing about new societies that are based upon um, utopian visions of how we can just create perfect people with the right social structures, that are based upon man's wisdom, and they're based upon a faith in the power of, of man's social structures, whether that be the state or something else, never end in human flourishing. They end in suffering. They end in more injustice. So what do we look to as the driving idea behind a kind of society that can bring about human flourishing? That can bring about less suffering, less exploitation, and more justice. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, declaring to them and laying out to them how God in the gospel had not just brought about individual salvation, but how God had established a new society. He had established a new human society. He was bringing about, in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit, God was bringing about a new humanity that could not be devised by human reason and that could not be enacted through the power of the state or the power of education or the power of, uh, of, of culture, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul showed us, in, book, in, in what the book of Ephesians is really all about, is telling us about God's new society. Telling us about God's new society. You see, and we can appreciate this all the more when we consider the time that Paul wrote this letter in. Paul wrote this letter, we don't know exactly, but scholars have these different methods for doing, uh, for doing historical dating for these letters that can bring about some pretty accurate results. And we, we believe that Paul wrote this letter towards the end of the first century A.D., Okay, so, um, so before AD 100, you know, like sometime uh, in, in like 70 to 90 AD somewhere. So it, it's, it's a little bit later there in, uh, in the first century. And this time in the Roman Empire was a time of social disintegration. The Roman Empire had already hit its peak at this point. If you know anything about Roman history, they hit their peak during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, he was the best leader that they ever had. He brought about the most uh, prosperity that they had ever had. He, had uh, he reigned during a time when all of the barbarians and all of the enemies of Rome had been crushed, when all of the divisions in the empire had been smoothed over, and he brought about what they called the Pax Romana, uh, the peace of Rome that existed throughout all of the empire. But this is after the uh, uh, Augustinian uh, era, and they were starting to experience, though the fall of the empire wouldn't come for a couple more centuries, already they were starting to experience this social disintegration that preceded that fall. And so in this time of social disintegration, Paul was saying, here is God's new society that he is building as we are seeing the human empire collapse around us. We as well live in a time of social disintegration. We live in a time of social breakdown. We live in a time where we can see uh, divisions in our culture bringing about social disintegration. We, we live in a time where we can see social disintegration in, in families and in households and in the uh, social tides that, that once bound people together falling apart. We live in a very similar time. And so therefore, Paul's letter and declaration of the society that God was building, that they must give and dedicate themselves to, is very relevant to us as well. And so even in the greeting and over the course of this whole series, 
in part one and in, in the next parts as we move on, is all about getting God's vision for the new society that he is building, uniting us all together within it, how it shapes our lives, how it uh, influences our worship of God, and how we apply it uh, to our church, to our households, and to the world around us. So when we look at the greeting today, we're looking at a couple of things. We're looking at how Paul tells us that in God's new society, we've been set apart. Secondly, how we have been set apart in Christ. And then lastly, we have been set apart in grace and in peace. So let's begin by talking about how we have been set apart. So right off in the very beginning, in the greeting of the letter, Paul follows what is uh, mostly the standard format that people would use for writing letters back then. It's interesting, if you ever go and you find a letter that was written uh, by Cicero. Cicero, we have a lot of letters from him, and they look a lot like Paul's letters, because he would start with, Cicero to so-and-so, uh, and I'm so thankful for you. And if you read Paul's letters, they follow a really similar format, right? He says he starts off by saying Paul, uh, and a couple of them he starts off by saying Paul and Timothy. So in other words, he's telling them, Here's who is sending you this letter, and then they greet who it's, they are uh, sending the letter to, and then they offer some kind of uh, thanksgiving or prayer. Uh, in, in secular letters that are written, they would just say uh, a, a wish for your health or how thankful I am for your relationship. But in Paul's letters, they would be a prayer for God's blessing upon them. Uh, he would end his greeting with grace and peace to them rather than just greetings to you. In fact, um, so they would end their letters with uh, greetings, and Paul would end it with grace. And in uh, the Greek language, these two words sounded extremely similar. Greeting was uh, karen, if I remember right, and grace is charis. So he took the formal format that they would use and kind of put his own twist on it to Christianize it. So he starts off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at uh, at Ephesus. Now, he describes himself and he describes them in these interesting and unique terms that I think we need to think about and grasp to really appreciate what he is doing here. He begins by saying, Paul and apostle. Now, there are those today who call themselves apostles, but what they are is not the same thing that Paul was, or that Peter or John were. Whenever we read the New Testament, and in the most biblical definition of what an apostle is, an apostle was one who had witnessed the risen Jesus, right? So Peter, John, the 11 disciples, right, minus Judas, the 11 disciples had witnessed the risen Christ, and he had commissioned them to be his messengers or be his witnesses uh, to the world. Paul Witness the risen Christ, not at the same time as them, but later. You can go back and read this in the book of Acts chapter 9. Paul also witnessed the risen Christ and was given a special commission by Christ to be his witness. So there are people who had witnessed the risen Christ and who, by virtue of their witnessing him, had been given a commission as well to speak on his behalf. They were uh, allowed to speak with the authority of God. That is something that no one has today. The only authority that, that I might speak upon is the authority of the Word and just faithfully communicating what, what the Word says. So that's something very different. It was this special office that they were set aside for. But then he says, so 
Paul, an apostle in Christ Jesus, he says, to the faithful saints. Who is he speaking to here? He's speaking to all the believers. He's speaking to ordinary folk, people like you and I. But in both cases, he is talking about this special designation. And in each case, it is a special designation of being set apart by God. So our first big point for today is this. We have been set apart by God for his purposes. We have been set apart by God for his purposes. He describes both himself, though in different terms, and we're gonna, I'm going to explain them more here in a second. But Paul describes both himself as an apostle and the church as saints, as people who have been set apart. Notice what is different about what he says about himself and them and what is the same. So what he says about them that is different, they have different offices. Now, I've already explained that. Paul is an apostle. That is the office that he has been set apart to. But the uh, Christians that he speaks to have been set apart as saints. There were very few apostles, but all of the believers are saints. John Calvin, in uh, his commentary on Ephesians, said this. He said, all believers are saints, and every saint is a believer. So we might think today of examples of people who were extraordinary in their character or who were extraordinary in their service for the church or for the kingdom, and so they have been canonized by the Catholic Church as saints. In other words, as people who are really, you know, like even better than, than the rest. But in the most biblical view and in Paul's view, there, were, there are no special categories of people who are saints and then everyone else. But all of God's children, all the, of those who follow Christ, who believe in Christ, who have received the gospel, are all saints. You all, all are saints. He does not make any special designations here. He doesn't say, you know, there's some of you guys who are new believers, uh, and he's like, and I'm not talking about the children who've confess faith in Christ. And I'm not talking about those who um, have backslidden recently. I'm talking about the rest of you. And he doesn't say, you know, the saints who are the pastors. He says to all of you, to the, to the faithful saints, he is speaking to every single one of them. They are all saints. And what is special about that is that being saints, meaning that they have been set apart by God. Just as Paul, though it was in a different office, right? There are only a few apostles, but all saints. Though, just like him, in, in his different offices, had been set apart by God to be used for his purposes. So we all have been set apart by God to be used for his purposes. You see, even the term and the designation saints is, a, is like the, the noun form uh, based off of the idea of being sanctified. Uh, and this coming from the idea of being made holy, right? Sanctification is the process of being made holy, and God's people are always a people who have been made holy for him. We can go back and read examples in the Old Testament of how God spoke of his nation Israel, his people Israel, as a holy nation. Now, what he means by that is not that they are perfect, right? Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> we can read so many examples that show how imperfect they are, and he has made you holy. Does that mean that you are perfect yet? Absolutely not. We all know that. What he means is by we have been made holy, we are, have been sanctified, we are saints, is that we have been set apart. Now, set apart for what? What does it mean to be set apart? Just, just put out there somewhere? Set apart for himself. You can go back to the Old Testament once again and read in, uh, in Deuteronomy. 
where God is addressing the nation of Israel. And he says to them, I have chosen you for myself. He said, out of all the nations and out of all the peoples of the world, I have chosen you to be my special possession. I have chosen you out of everyone else and out of all the world to be my people. He looks at them and he, and he carves them out. He pulls them out of the context of the rest of the world. And he says, not because you are better. He says, not because you are better, because you are smarter, because you are more powerful. In fact, he says, you, you, you are the weakest of all the peoples. And he says, and yet, by virtue of nothing that you have done, but only because of my love and grace, he says, I've taken you apart to be my own special possession, to have a special relationship where I am your God and you are my people. And for the Christians in Ephesus and all the Christians here today, to be a saint means that you have been chosen and set apart by God to be his special possession. Do you remember being a child and seeing something that you really wanted? And it was just so important that you had that. You know, maybe it'd be a toy. Maybe it'd be a pet. And it, you, you looked at it, you adored it, and you just, you just thought how great and wonderful it was and how much you had to have it. And then if you ever got that thing, you know, that pet, that stuffed animal, that toy, just how incredibly special it was to you that it was yours. God looks at you and he chooses you to be his possession. He looks at you, and it is so special to him that you become his. We have been set apart for him as his special possession. So we're different in our offices. Paul is an apostle. We are saints, but we are the same in that we have all been set apart. And we are the same in that we have all been set apart in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He has been set apart for Christ Jesus and to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. So even though Paul says like he has a different office, he says it doesn't make him better because we are all in Christ Jesus together. He is a servant as we are all called to be servants. He was just called to a different job. We are all set apart and we are all set apart in Christ Jesus. We'll be talking about that more in more detail here in a second. And they're all set apart by the will of God. They're all set apart by the will of God. Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And by extension of that, we know by, or by implication that they have been set apart as saints by God's will as well. God chose them. God chose you. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I did not set myself up as an apostle. I did not choose myself to be an apostle. One cannot appoint themselves as an apostle. He says, I'm an apostle only by God's will. And similarly, one does not make themselves a saint. One cannot set themselves apart for God. One cannot, through their actions or through their moral integrity, achieve sainty, uh, yeah, sainthood status. It is something that is done by the will of God. And so, believer, whenever you read the scriptures and you read the promises of God that are for you because you have been set apart, you must read this and in your mind know and remember, not by what I have done, but because of what God has done for me. Not by my own will, but by God's will. You didn't set yourself apart. 
You didn't set yourself apart. God did. It is all done by his work. The grace, the forgiveness that we experience, the new relationship, the covenant relationships that we are brought into in the church have been done by God's will. Therefore, we have no righteousness of our own to stand upon. We have no merits of our own to to stand upon in the kingdom of God. We all stand upon the merit and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone and his finished work. We have no grounds for boasting any of us. Even the righteousness that we do perform, the obedience that we do walk out, we do upon the work of Jesus Christ. We, we do work and endeavor to obey God with the best of our ability. But we do so not because we are working to set ourselves apart, but because we have been set apart. Read the New Testament and what, uh, what Paul and what John are saying, whatever they explain to us. They say, you know, walk in the manner worthy to which you have been called. They are saying to us, not walk so that you might be set apart. They are saying, you have been set apart. No, walk worthy of that. Live up to that calling that you have been given. It's been given to you. It's been done by the will of God. It's been finished on your behalf. Look, you can't lose it. You can't mess it up. Once you have been set apart, you can't then, you know, put yourself back into the world. It's been done for you. And in the security that you have, now live worthy of it. Walk worthy of it. And so the Christian does not obey so that we might earn God's love. And we do not obey in, a, in an effort to pay him back for what he has done. We have not been, our, our debt of sin was not removed just so that we might now live in a debt to God that we've been paid back. It is a free gift. And so out of the joy of receiving that free gift and in this new calling that we have, we try to walk worthy of it. So obey God in your walk to be consistent with him having set you apart. Guys, throughout your week, whenever you are going about work and you're going about your your household lives and your personal lives and you're fighting temptation and you're sensing God's calling and whether you will obey or not, whether you will pursue righteousness and flee sin or whether you will indulge in sin, do you flee sin and pursue righteousness because you feel an anxiety over your state before God? and you're afraid of his judgment, and you're worried about losing his love, or do you remind yourself that you have been set apart by him to be his own possession based upon the finished work of Christ alone and inspired by what what God has done for you and in thankfulness and joy for how he has set you apart by his will because he chose you not by an act of will on your own. You now joyfully do your best to walk worthy of what he has done in response to what he has done. As God has poured out his love upon you, do you see your acts of obedience and your resisting of sin as an act of love and return to him? Or do you forget these things and though you have been set apart, still live as though you have not been set apart? Though you have been set apart, living as though you have to earn that being set apart. Walk in the manner worthy to which you have been called. And he says that we have been set apart in Christ, in Christ Jesus, both of us. This is one of the ongoing themes that we're going to see as we work through the book of Ephesians. We have been set apart, right? It's about God's new society, but what are we set apart in, right? In other words, so if we were in the world and we've been set apart, where we've been moved to, if you want to think of it in terms of geography, 
right? If we were living in the world, well, where are we living now? If we were separated from the, the, the weeds and thistles of the world, well, what vine have we been attached to now? We've been attached to the vine of Christ. We have been united to, by, to God, set, so we've been set apart from the world, and now not just free-floating individuals, but united to God in Christ Jesus. In terms of geography, we have moved out of the world and into Christ. In terms of uh, where does our life come from, we were removed from the weeds and thistles and thorns of the world and been united to the vine, which is Christ. In terms of the body, right, we have been severed from the body of the world and we have been attached to the body of Christ. We now live in Christ Jesus. He is our home where we live. He is the king that we live under. He is the body that we are attached to, the vine that we have been grafted into. And so this is our second point. We have been united with Christ, though we still live in the world. Because obviously in the practical sense and in the physical sense, we we are still in the world. But the world is no longer our ultimate home. Being in Christ is where we ultimately belong now. So while we still live in the world, we are also in Christ. While we still live among the kingdom of man, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We, are, we do not belong to the, um, to the old humanity that still lives around us, but we belong to the new humanity that is being made in Jesus Christ. We'll see this more in, 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 ch- in chapter 2 of Ephesians. We live in and we have been united in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be united in Christ, to be called as saints in Christ Jesus? What does it mean? First of all, it means this. It means we are defined and shaped by Christ. Just as a fish lives in water, and so its entire life is shaped and molded and determined by being uh, a being in water, so we as well. If we are in Christ, our entire life is shaped and molded and determined by being in Christ. It is now our identity being in Christ. My primary identity is no longer in being, uh, you know, American or being Cajun or I'm not really Cajun anyway. I'm Cajun by marriage is what I like to say, Uh, you know, or or, or being in, in this or being that or so on, my primary identity now that defines who I am is in Christ. And it is so important that we live that out. Because there are days and times where, because you are weary from dealing with sin, or because you have been beat down by the world, you've been been beat down by the sinful actions of others, you feel worthless. And your identity are the kinds of things that we, you know, dare wouldn't even say from a microphone. Like I said, being worthless or being a sinner or being vile or being shameful or whatever else. We tend to start operating in those identities and those self-identifications. It is so vitally important, not just so that I remember that I have been separated from the world, but so that I am constantly reminded of God's love for me, that I am in Christ Jesus, and that defines who I am, not what my doubting heart says about me, not what people have told me who I am, not what the world tells me who I am, but who Christ says I am. I am his saint in him. 
God has placed me in him, and that is now my identity. So that whenever I feel the devil trying to set, tell me, no, you are shameful, you are vile, you are worthless, or you're a failure, or you're a loser, or whatever else you heard from the enemy telling you this week, or the enemy telling you right now, they're not true. If you are Jesus's, your identity is in Christ Jesus. And his word denounces and trumps and overrules and silences all those others. My identity is in Christ Jesus. My life is shaped by being in Christ Jesus. It is not just that my Sunday mornings are different, and it's not just that I have a 10-minute Bible study once a day, every other day, or, or maybe that I even pray before meals. No, my entire life now, the way that I view the world, the way that I um, order my values and order my priorities and what determines my schedule, what determines how I use my money, what determines how I navigate my relationships and build my household and so on is Christ Jesus and being in him. My entire life is now being shaped by him, defined and shaped by Christ. But being in Christ Jesus goes beyond just the individual. Being identified in and defined and shaped by Christ, that's very individual, right? But it goes beyond this. Being in Christ Jesus means union. It means union. Number one, union with God. You have been united to God in Christ Jesus. And you cannot be separated from God because you are in Christ Jesus, bound by his love. Nothing can sever that relationship. Remember Romans uh, chapter 8 at the end, whenever Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God? And he goes through this long list of all these powers, and he says, even death itself, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because it is a love that has been united to him inseparably, infinitely in Christ Jesus. We have been united to God. If you ever feel as though God is distant, if you ever feel as though that unity and union has been separated because of your sin, it's a false image. It's a lie of the enemy. It is just a boundary. A, 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 um, a, it's a smokescreen that has been placed in your mind and in your spirit that is not true because that union cannot be broken. And all you have to do is blow through the smokescreen, go back to the word, and, and know and repent from that sin and know that you are still united to God. We have union with God, and that union means relationship. I just got to talk to uh, a guy um, on the podcast, it's going to come out tomorrow, about this idea of having a relationship with God. And he said, our relationship with God is established by this union that we have, this, this unity that has been done by God alone. But now out of that union comes communion, comes a two-way street relationship that we are involved in, where the union that has been established and the love that comes with it, the grace that comes with it, the comfort that comes with it, we now respond back to God with in love and in praise and in, uh, in obedience back. So being in Christ means we have union with God and we have union with one another. We are not just inseparably, inseparably bound to God, but we are bound to one another. To be a Christian in the church, in the, in the kingdom of God, and in the church universal, but also in the local church, 
is not relationships that you get to pick and choose. They're not relationships that you get to maintain wherever it is convenient and let go of and break whenever it is inconvenient. We have been bound to one another inseparably, not by our own decision, but by the will of God, just as we have been bound to God the Father, inseparably by his will. We have been united with one another. We have a union with one another as well in Christ Jesus. And this should change the way that we approach our relationships with each other and change the way that we, eat, that we view ourselves and one another. You see, you remember how I told you that Paul would follow the standard greetings for letters in their day? He would announce himself and he would announce them. But one of the things that he changed, and you can actually see this in all of the letters of the, New, of the New Testament. Scholars point this out. They say, you know, this is so interesting and it's so different from uh, what was conventional. They wouldn't just say, here's who's sending the letter and here's who I'm sending it to. But they would also describe who was sending the letter and who was receiving it in terms of their relationship to God, in terms of their relationship to Jesus. So it wasn't just Aaron sending a letter to Lafayette, but it was Aaron in Christ, you know, a servant of Christ, sending a letter to the church in Lafayette who is in Christ. The way that we view ourselves and one another in our relationships now, are they're not defined by the things that the world defines. And they're not defined by our past. They're defined by our being united together in Christ. Do you view your brothers and sisters in the church and even in our local church in these terms? Not just in whatever labels you might place upon someone sitting next to you or nearby you, but as a brother or a sister in Christ, united in Christ? But we are also set apart by God, united in Christ, in grace and in peace, he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we might say, once again, we have been set apart and we have been brought into union and so on, but what is the nature of this state that we have been brought into? What's the nature of this union that we have been brought into? What is it based upon, and what is, how can we describe the experience of being brought into this union? Paul says it is one of grace and of peace. It is one of grace and of peace. This is our last point, the third point. We have been brought into a state of grace and peace with God. What does that mean? Grace means receiving favor from God. It means receiving blessings and gifts that were unmerited, that we didn't earn. That's what grace is. Grace means though I deserved death, though I deserve condemnation and judgment from God, I received something that I did not deserve, which is his favor. I received forgiveness of sin, my debt being washed away, my shame being washed away, and now experiencing all the blessings that come along with that union. That is what it means to have grace with God. But he says grace to you in peace as well. What he means by peace is it is a special state of being. It's based upon the Hebrew term shalom and the Old Testament idea of what shalom meant. Shalom didn't just mean being in a state that lacked uh, threats or anxiety. That's what we typically think of by when we think of peace. We think of peace as being uh, the same thing as uh, just, just feelings of being at ease or as just being a synonym with tranquility and so on. But in the Hebrew idea of shalom, peace, it was so much bigger than that. Yes, it's, it means tranquility. It means 
security. It means freedom from anxieties and dangers. But it was also a more general state of flourishing as well. Of flourishing in our spirit, in our mind, in our body, and even in our life around us. Peace, shalom, and the shalom of God was not just something purely spiritual or based in the realm of feelings, but also intensely practical. It it meant experiencing God's presence and blessings from our soul outward into the world around us. So shalom is not just a state of mind, but it's a state of being to live in. Shalom is something that a society can experience. Whenever a society is flourishing, it is, 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 and is experiencing the blessings of the gospel, reconciliation of relationships, and yes, even, um, even prosperity from a blessing of the gospel. This is shalom. So what is the state of being brought into, of being set apart? What is the experience of being set apart by God? It is grace and peace. It is favor and gifts that you didn't earn and the blessings of shalom that come with that grace and favor. Now, how is this possible? If I, and if you, and if these Ephesians, and if Paul too, didn't deserve this grace, then how is God just to give it? Because Christ also received something that he did not deserve. What Christ received that he did not deserve was not grace, but wrath. He deserved God's blessing. He deserved God's favor because of his righteousness and obedience, because he was perfectly the new man that God desired for for the world. He perfectly lived that out. Because he perfectly did live that out, he deserved God's favor and blessing. But instead, he received death. Instead, he he received God's condemnation and wrath upon our sin, so that through receiving it upon himself, he might absorb the wrath of God and then turn it instead into favor on our behalf. This is what, there's a big theological term uh, in 1 John called propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation. He, and what that word means is he received the wrath, absorbed the wrath of God, paid our debt, and then turns what was wrath that should have been poured upon us into grace now poured upon us. It is possible because of the work of Christ alone. No one that Paul was writing to, when he said grace to you, had earned that grace. He did not earn that grace. Like I said before, no one sets themselves apart. It's only done through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And that state of peace and shalom that we all look at our lives and we know there's a lot of places in our lives where there's breakdown, where there's disintegration that needs shalom. We look at our own lives, we look at our households, we look at the world around us, and we recognize that it needs shalom. It only comes after grace. Only by the grace of God, accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ alone, can peace then come. Which is why Paul says, grace and peace to you. And so what is our job now? If you experience God's grace and peace, and if you have been set apart by Christ, what is our job now? Our job now is to extend God's new society of grace and of justice and of peace to our lives and to the world around us. As I said before, what Paul 
is declaring and laying out here in the book of Ephesians is God's new society. And we might say, now, is, is it just an idea that Paul is giving us? And then nothing more than that. Is it, just, is it just a nice thought? Is it something that is just purely experiential but not practical at all? It's intensely practical. Just as, uh, just as any other idea brings about certain consequences and changes in the world, right? As I said before, whether it be a Marxist idea that brings about suffering and pain and more breakdown and injustice, what Paul is declaring to us here is something that can bring about real change in the world around us. Declaring God's new society and us receiving it is something that can now bring about practical changes in our life. Because we read what Paul talks about here, and we might say, well, where do we see God's new society today? Is it something that we just hold in our hearts? No, we can see it today. Where do we see it? We see it in the church. Guys, through reading Ephesians and and, and all of God's word, it is supposed to transform us into a new, a new little society that exists in the midst of the society around us, where we have a new basis for social relationships, a new basis for what binds us together, new values and priorities that we all live together by, a union that we seek to maintain and that we seek to grow and, and, uh, and, and experience together. We see it in the church, but... We should see it in our households too. God's new society is not something that only exists from 1030 to noon on a Sunday morning. It is something that ought to exist all the time, everywhere. As we gather together here in the local church, but then go individually to our homes and neighborhoods and continue to extend and apply God's new society to those places as well. We go to our homes and we see them now, not just as places where we unwind after the end of a long day or where we have some fun or where we decide what kind of new projects we're going to do, but we see them as places as where in this household, we are seeking to apply God's new society so that this household and in the relationships of this family or, or with my roommates or whatever else it might be, whatever your household looks like, it will be according to the rules of God's society so that people who come here might see this is an image, a preview of what God's society looks like. And because the gospel cannot be held back, even by the gates of hell, that gospel will continue to advance through its people, and we can apply God's new society to the world around us. So we might see shalom not just applied to our churches, our individuals, and our households, but applied to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and the city around us. so that it might be applied to policies, so that it might be applied to government, so that it might be applied to commerce, businesses, healthcare, education, and so on. The gospel is comprehensive in what it seeks to transform. And God's kingdom, his new society, does not place limits on what he intends to apply his, uh, you know, the lordship of Christ, there's no limits to it. To what he intends to apply his lordship to. As a church, as Redeemer, this is what we exist for, to declare and apply that lordship of Christ over all of Acadiana. How does it happen? By receiving and living out God's new society. Let's pray.